Welcome to TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast where several hosts talk about the week's technology news. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh34. We have three hosts this week. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment newsletter on the internet, and the website spamprimer.com to help you fight spam and get your inbox back. I'm Kevin Savitz, founder of freeprintable.net, which offers 46,000 free printable documents and templates, and faxzero.com, which lets you send faxes anywhere in the United States and Canada for free. And I'm Leo Notenboom, Chief Question Answerer at AskLeo.com. I'm also the publisher of a couple of non-tech sites, uh, NotAllNewsIsBad.com, a daily antidote for, well, everything else, and HeroicStories.org, twice-weekly stories of people just being good people. Cool stuff. So, Randy, assuming your internet connection holds out for us today, what have you been up to this week? Yeah, I might be a little flaky tonight, but you know what else is new with my your, uh, your neck chewing gum? Yeah. My chewing gum and bailing wire c- connection uh, will hopefully hold up. Well, I was uh, traveling last week and uh, had an interesting tech problem, which Leo already knows about because I said, help. And uh, that was I was at a hotel and my phone connected up just fine. My wife's phone connected up just fine. But my laptop, my wife's laptop, and my wife's tablet just refused to connect. And I'm pretty sure it was probably a router problem with the uh, the hotel's router. But there was nobody there that knew anything that could reboot it and uh, maybe fix things. Remind me what kind of a tablet she has. Uh, it's an older uh, Nexus tablet. Okay, but it's an Android-based device. Yeah, yeah, Android. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, those two, I actually, I don't recall you mentioning that back then because I was scratching my head like crazy about Windows things. But once you bring in something like an Android tablet where absolutely everything is different right down to the operating system, um, boy, it sure points the finger at the router, like you said. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that came up in our discussions while we were trying to scratch our heads over what could be going on is the realization that... uh, Fixing it, you know, I'm in a situation where if it were me, I'd be sitting there, I'd be poking at different things. I'd be looking at different settings and maybe even running a diagnostic utility or two or just sort of, you know, seeing what happens. Um, Like I said, poking around. But that's one of those things that's extremely difficult to instruct somebody else to do on your behalf. So even if they're techie. Even if they are techie, which you are. I mean, obviously, you're part of the tech enthusiast hour. But the point being, though, that um, sometimes things can get fixed without knowing how to fix them going in. And that's part of the, the, <laughs> the joy and the confusion that is technology sometimes. Yeah, if I really had to... When I really had to be online, I would just use my phone as a hotspot. And so I was able to get work done, you know, the important stuff. But... Yeah. Oh, well, says his life. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. It'll be interesting to see if you ever end up at that hotel again, if, if they still have the problem, hopefully they'll have rebooted their router since then. But, um, but yeah, it's just interesting to note that uh, sometimes these things happen and sometimes they don't get fixed, which is why it's nice to have uh, alternatives in your pocket in the form of your. Yeah. And I just don't want people to feel bad if they have problems like this, because, you know, if it happens to us and we can't fix it, 
you know, sometimes you just need a bigger shotgun. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It happens to me too. Uh, and sometimes it's just not worth the effort to try and figure it out, especially like you said, when you've got that, uh, that other mobile device in your pocket ready to go. Kevin, how about you? Hello. I've had an extremely geeky uh, couple of weeks um, involving uh, travel. I uh, went to, I missed the last couple of recordings here because one of the reasons is I went to Kansas Fest, which is the uh, Apple II conference that I go to every year uh, and uh, had a marvelous time at that. It's held every year at Rockhurst University and uh, about 100, 105 people come from all over the world to uh, gather bringing their old equipment and play with uh, Apple II computers. And uh, I gave three, two and a half talks. Um, and, uh, and how does, how does one give half a talk? Well, I, one of them I was doing with someone else. So he did half the work. So. <laughs> um, and uh, it had a, had a great time and saw some people doing amazing things with very old technology. And uh, then just last weekend, I, uh, took my kid to uh, the California Extreme Arcade Game Show in Santa Rosa, California. And uh, it's a two-day event where they basically uh, fill two rooms of a convention center with old stand-up arcade games, or actually some new, some quite old, and and uh, some very modern um, arcade games. And uh, everything's set on free play, and you just spend the weekend playing pinball and arcade games and uh so you have a kid that's in the old tech also yes yeah yeah she likes the old that was a surprise she was like into the old pinball games you know stuff from the the uh 60s and 70s and um that's pretty neat yeah there's definitely something different about you know actually moving a large you know steel ball as opposed to a picture of something around a screen yeah uh it's i kind of i like i enjoy pinball and and I like the analogness of it, and and I'm more into the the modern pinball and stuff that come out in the last five ten years, which I think it does a really nice uh, uh, joining of the the analog stuff. It's like, yeah, you're actually moving a steel ball around a playfield, but with LEDs and pretty graphics and great sound and and good gameplay and and, and really uh, using tech to add to the experience. Kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Leo? Well, I've, my weekend or my last few days, I've definitely been non-tech in nature. Uh, as I mentioned last week, I spent was preparing for, and just this last Saturday held, the Pacific Northwest Corgi Picnic. It's the uh, 17th time we've done this. We have 100 people, 100 corgis all come running around our backyard. We were, <clears throat> we were a little concerned about the weather because it was unseasonably hot here. Uh, in the le- days leading up, uh, we actually got a bit of a reprieve. It didn't get quite as hot. It was still pretty toasty, but not as bad as we had feared. The big fear, of course, is with a lot of dogs running around, getting excited and so forth, that they overheat. And, you know, people obviously overheat. We're not used to this kind of weather. But, uh, no, it was a great time. Uh, good time was had by all. Uh, I will have, uh, you know, the show notes will, of course, have links to uh, not just the site where I'm collecting uh, links to everybody's pictures, but as has happened in previous years, there um, was a photographer from a local news organization on site, and they have posted, I think, 70 uh, pictures on their website 
that and they're just gorgeous. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing what a professional photographer can do. And this person did an awesome, awesome job. It really helps that she was looking forward to it because she really loves corgis. So um, we'll have links to all that uh, in the show notes, of course, but uh, no, it was a good weekend. It, it also course, helps that corgis are, you know, pretty photogenic. They are, they are. And, you know, obviously I, I but I, I know that I'm somewhat biased in saying, you know, corgis are incredibly photogenic. I'm sure that, you know, the owner of every other breed on the planet will say the same thing about their breed. And I, I understand that, but um, yeah, there are, there are some great, great shots. So of course, Sunday, the day after um, was literally a day of rest. We had um, 12 very tired and coincidentally very well-behaved dogs lying around the house. They basically all did nothing the entire day and the humans joined them in that endeavor. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. So, and today it was kind of sort of back to work. Day. Okay. Why 12? Cause I know you don't personally own 12 dogs. So while the picnic itself start, it, you know, starts like a 12 on Saturday and, and ends at to technically four on Saturday evening or Saturday afternoon. Um, our dog's breeder is a really good friend of ours and she comes a couple of days early and she leaves a couple of days later and brings with her 10 dogs. So it's like, wow. she, she's, you know, as, as long as she makes it here with her dogs, the party's on. It doesn't matter how many other people show up. We're going to have a good time. Um, but yeah, she's, um, she's still here right now and uh, she's heading home tomorrow. We're actually, uh, while she's on, she actually lives out on one of the islands in Puget Sound, which is why she ends up staying here. Otherwise the travel gets a little bit crazy. But yeah. uh, while she's on this side, uh, we're actually going to be doing a, an airport run because she's shipping one of her dogs or one of the dogs to uh, someone in um, a Little Rock, I think it is. So mm. that's where I'm heading off after we've done, we're done recording tonight is we're going to do a quick airport run to, uh, to take one to go. All right. Sounds good. So, it was a fun weekend. Well, we have Kevin here who can do the uh, sound effects and then uh, take it away with Breach of the Week. Oh, that was weak. Oh, what? No, that, was... <laughs> that was one of my better <laughs> ones. Like, that was a you great do one. it. You don't like how I do it. You w E A K. Yes. Or is it W E E K? Breach of the Week. So go ahead. Uh, uh, Idaho prison inmates exploited tablet vulnerability to steal $225 in credits. Two hundred and what? Twenty-five thousand dollars. That's better. That's 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 more impressive, isn't it? Um, I think it was an inside job. <laughs> I just I think that this really shows more than anything that uh, if you give people just unlimited time to hack, they will hack. You know, they will they will find the the vulnerabilities. Um, a group of three hundred sixty-four prison inmates housed across a series of Idaho corrections facilities collectively stole nearly $225,000 worth of digital credits by exploiting a vulnerability in tablets provided by a company called JPay. JPay is a private company that provides digital services like email, music, games, and money transfer to prison inmates. So credits doesn't sound like real money. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, they, they stole the idea of money from from this company, a company that's probably maybe not the, I'm guessing maybe not the best kind of company anyway, because uh, maybe, maybe I, I don't know. I have, 
I have opinions about exploitation of uh, people in prison. But basically, these guys, the interesting part is uh, they found a, some sort of back door, which has not been revealed, and managed to give themselves credit on this service for, for, for using the system uh, anywhere from $1,000 per person up to $10,000 in, in one inmate's. Uh, yeah, no, uh, I noticed go ahead. They, they shut down the access to a lot of these things, but I noticed inmates are still allowed to use email. It's like, really? I didn't know prisoners got email. Yeah, me neither. I mean, it makes sense, but uh, it's kind of a, way people communicate in modern times but yeah do they they get tablets to to do things like email but i i don't know if they're you know are they charged per email or something ridiculous it's it's interesting i was reading through some of that the they are there are services available through the tablet that they are charged for and that's exactly what these credits are all about basically they're just getting themselves credits in order to be able to um, make use of some of these services on these download tablets. music and games. That kind I of think stuff. so. Yeah. I think it's that kind of thing. I don't know that uh, I didn't see email listed as one of the things they had to pay for. Um, interestingly, I did notice that um, the devices themselves uh, are sometimes paid for by the inmate or their family. In other words, they're bought you know, for that person, but there were apparently also some cases where this company also just provided them. And I'm not exactly sure what their, what their, you know, what their revenue model is, what the, what the, uh, the motivation is for doing so. But I just thought it was interesting. It does make sense that if you're going to hand um, you know, connectivity devices to uh, inmates in a prison, you're going to want to have something that is both able to be restricted in some fashion, because of course they can't do just anything online or they shouldn't be able to do just anything online. But also I suspect that they're also built with um, activity monitoring uh, as part of the equation. So they would think if they do have email, then by definition, just like their phone calls can be listened into um, their uh, emails can be monitored by somebody. I don't know who the somebody would be, uh, but that's probably those kinds of services on the back end. If, if I were going to build a company like that, that's where I'd be uh, looking at at the revenue model, at these kind of monitoring and security services on the back end where you're charging the, uh, the uh, institution rather than, in, the, rather than the inmates. Their, their, their website, JPay, your home for correction services, convenient and affordable correctional services, including money transfer, email, videos, tablets and music, education, and parole and probation payments. And there's a lot well, of exclamation points that make it sound very, very happy. Exciting. Well, exciting. And I know that, that there's phone companies that really screw over inmates and their families by charging just ridiculous rates for phone calls. Yeah. Like, you know, four bucks a minute or something crazy like that. It's so no wonder they have a problem with bootleg cell phones in prisons. Like, come on. Yeah. And the other part of me is also, I mean, I, I don't know if, if it's an unfair characterization or whatever, but gee, you give a bunch of criminals equipment and they use that to then act. Do something like criminal. Criminals. Yeah. It's just, okay. Somebody didn't see this coming. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I think if you're going to serve that market, you really need some pretty bulletproof if you Pardon the expression, security. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no kidding. So speaking of hackers, our second uh, breach of the week, if you want to call it that, 
um, how a hacker allegedly stole millions by hijacking phone numbers. I'm less interested actually in the specifics of this one, uh, although it is kind of it is kind of funny in that um, the hackers used this technique that I'll talk about in a second to steal uh, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency from uh, some cryptocurrency investors who happened to be attending a blockchain conference. So mm -hmm. this was very definitely targeted. These were like, I think it's only 40 numbers, it looks like, that they, that they used to steal something on the order of $5 million. Now, one of the things that is very convenient about our mobile phones is what happens when you lose one. So, or what happens when it dies, when it breaks, you drop it and it doesn't work anymore. Your uh, mobile provider can relatively quickly simply assign your number to a new device. I've done this. I think we've all done this at one point or another. Uh, you know, one second, uh, it's your old phone that would ring to your number. And in a few seconds later, after they've done their magic, it's the new phone that rings instead. It's good. It's convenient. It makes moving. Or if you can just transplant the SIM card. Right. Well, that, that is often what they're doing, although they're doing that less and less these days. And in fact, that's not what happened in this case. Um, but yeah, SIM cards, I think, honestly, I think SIM cards are on their way out. I think that um, most of the phones that I've dealt with recently uh, don't use a SIM card. They end up using the same kinds of technology uh, within but I don't think there's as often a, a physical SIM card that gets moved around. What Randy's pointing out is that with a SIM card, you could do this yourself. You take a SIM card out of one phone and put it into another phone that supports a SIM card, and poof, your number, your everything uh, went with that card, and now that new phone is your phone, again, as long as it's compatible with the phone network that you happen to be using. Anyway, what happens here? So like I said, the phone company, the mobile company has all this, I'll just say, power. They have the power to make your life very convenient when you've dropped or lost your phone, but they also have the power to screw it up. And it sounds like that's what happened here. This sounds less like a bit of technology and more like a bunch of social engineering where these hackers basically convinced phone companies I dropped my phone or my phone's not working. I've got a new one. Can you transfer my account to this new phone? And they did. And as a result of them, the hackers were able to intercept things like authentication requests or even you know, two-factor authentication requests or password resets. And basically, that's how they got into these, uh, into these accounts. So it's one of those cases where you know, security is really only as good as its weakest link. And sometimes it's the phone company that you're dealing with uh, or even the customer service agent that you might be dealing with at a specific phone company that uh, that might be the weakest link. We're not in the case, you know, in situations where we're about to, uh, to lose millions of dollars because somebody stole my phone. But uh, clearly, you know, these folks, especially when it's targeted, it's one more technique that the hackers have at their disposal. And it just comes down to social engineering and the usual things that we've been talking about week after week that, yeah, you, you, these companies really need to do better. And to be fair, a lot of them are. And I actually have some sympathy for them because they walk this incredibly fine line. On one hand, security is a pain in the butt. It just is. And people get confused easily. They get frustrated easily when they can't log into their account. So 
when you call up a company, be it your phone company, um, Amazon is the one that comes to mind because they actually suffered from this a couple of years ago. They were socially engineered and that's what caused someone to, to uh, actually it was one of the well-publicized hacks from a few years ago, Matt Honan lost access to, uh, um, to his, uh, his the information in his uh, Macintosh or in his iCloud account, I think it was. And he was actually watching it in real time as it was happening. And that was all due to social engineering of Amazon. But the problem is the customers call in, they've forgotten their password, they can't log in, they can't do something. On one hand, you want it to be super, super secure. On the other hand, you don't want to piss off your customer. And that's a really, really hard thing to do. So while I agree, absolutely, that should not happen, I can see how it can. I really can. Oh, yeah, I can see yeah. how it can too. And it's a, it's a tough balancing act, but yeah. I've I've heard of one where uh, somebody got hold of a PayPal account, I think, by doing the same thing, calling PayPal and and saying, oh, I, I lost this or I had trouble with that. And PayPal said, oh, yeah, here, we'll just change your password to this for you. Thanks. Right. Well, and, it was a, and, it was a, and it was a two-factor authentication secured account even. Yeah. Hopefully it wasn't as simple, literally, as you just outlined, you know, okay, here. I mean, Hopefully. normally what ends up happening is these hackers end come in armed with information. Often the information right. that we leak ourselves on social media, uh, you know, if you've actually- Like your mother's maiden name. And or your favorite pet or your first pet or the street you lived on or any of those kinds of things to, that, you know, to just run through the gamut of Facebook quizzes. Um, you know, hackers can collect that information and that's the kind of stuff they use to come armed when they make these social engineering calls to places like PayPal or Amazon or wherever. And it's one of the ways that they can be successful. And it does happen. So it do. All right. So, who is going to talk about Japan's Y2K bug? I love that one. I'll just slide into it then. Yeah, do it. Yeah. Um, so we're all familiar with hope. Well, actually, I don't know. It's been <laughs> many of us are familiar with the old Y2K problem. And the problem there was very simply that many computer programs, much software was written to assume a two digit year because, well, who would ever you know, need more than that? Uh, unfortunately, when the year 2000 we all lived. Yeah. We, when, uh, when the year 2000 came along, that two digit year rolled over from 99 to zero, zero. And the concern was that lots and lots of software would break. Uh, turned out not to be the case, but the fundamental problem behind that, the concept at least, is a very real one. Sometimes you actually engineer things in a way that's not compatible with how the future pay plays out. In Japan, apparently, they measure the year as being relative to the current monarch. So for example, you know, I don't know, I honestly don't know the current monarch's name or how long he's been in place. But for example, it could be, you know, year five of the uh, Leo monarchy, right? And that's how dates would be. Actually, that sounds like dark days, frankly. Could be. <laughs> <laughs> but then the Savitz dynasty comes along and all of a sudden, oh, no, it's even worse. It, all of a sudden it's year zero again. So basically all these years get reset and there's no real way to um, encode the fact that, well, it's relative to something that actually happened on this day according to the previous calendar or relative to some other uh, more uh, constant standard. So that's the concern that they're having because the emperor um, Akihito is apparently abdicating uh, sometime, I think later this year. 
And as a result, they're faced with this problem. They actually, in many cases, don't know how they're going to solve it, at least at the technology level. And one of my favorite parts of this is that it also involves emojis because they have a, an emoji for the era and they don't know exactly what Akihito's son is going to name his dynasty or whatever they call it. And so they can't do the emoji yet until they get that information. And this happens something like a month after the next set of emojis come out. Hmm. So they're saying, well, can you hurry it up? Can you give us some notice? And it's like, no, we're not going to work on your timetable. Use an eggplant. We, we've all got that already on our phones. So. <laughs> the eggplant dynasty. <laughs> well, the previ- previous one was uh, chrysanthemum. So it's not really that far off. And it well, is, it, it, it's a Japanese, couple of Japanese characters that they sure. mashed together to, oh, right. to do it, but oh. it's not just a vegetable. Sorry. I'm, I'm, still, writing, like, I'm still writing. Akihito. It's not like the Chinese year of the rooster or something like that. Right. But it will be interesting to see how this one plays out. What I'm hoping um, is that, I mean, when Y2K played out here, what a lot of, there were two ways to approach the problem. One was to hack it, just, you know, patch, throw something together so that your software wouldn't die um, on midnight on December 31st of 99. The other solution, though, is the more forward thinking one. And that says, okay, fine. What should the date really be? And I'm hoping that uh, this will bring to light for those software vendors who are facing this as a problem, um, potentially using a technique that is a little less sensitive to current politics, current regime, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and maybe something that at the same time could be uh, globally compatible uh, so that they're not necessarily having to do a lot of conversion that I'm sure they're having to do now when they're taking things in and out of Japanese specific software. But it just gets crazy. It's like, can everybody be on the same calendar? Wasn't there supposed uh, to be a um, um, a Unix date rollover? Do you remember yeah, anything? That's, about? Yeah, that's sounds familiar. Up. Yeah, uh, it's the Unix Y2K problem. <laughs> that's coming yeah, up. In a, yeah. That's that 2038 is... Uh, oh, okay. Okay, yeah. so we're a ways away. Oh, we'll all be dead by then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At the rate we're going. The kids will uh, fix it, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, basically in... in Unix uh, starts encoding with uh, time, be, time begins in January 1st, 1970. It's stored as a 32-bit integer. And if your Unix system is encoding like that, then you, you run out of digits uh, sometime in the, uh, the afternoon on January 19th, 2038. So that's, that's the problem. Um, and certain Unix systems have already f- chain, fixed that problem by doing two integers or, or I was going to say they've simply gone to 64 bit integers as a solution. Sure. But, um, of course there's many, many older systems, especially, I mean, Unix is just so used on everything. It's like, you know, windows NT, it's just like embedded in just like everything. So I'm sure there are many, many ATMs and tablets and, and credit card readers and just so many gadgets that are, are, could be affected. Actually, the ATMs won't be affected. They'll be still still be safely running Windows XP. Oh, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Probably true. Um, which actually, well, something you said reminded me, is there, um, have either of you seen any of the HTTP not secure warnings out of your browser yet? I have not. 
The, no, the, I tend to use Safari, which I don't think is as aggressive about that as Chrome is. So. Right, right. I'm, I live in Chrome, and I, uh, I haven't seen it yet. So to remind our listeners what, what I'm talking about, Google Chrome is supposedly going to start flagging sites that use plain old HTTP as opposed to HTTPS uh, as not secure. Technically, technically, they're right. Uh, the information that you exchange with a server across an HTTP connection could be sniffed. It's, it's visible potentially to anybody who has access to the bits uh, flowing between your computer and that server. The uh, HTTPS, of course, encrypts so that it's encrypted on your machine before it leaves and it's encrypted on the, in, on the server side before it comes back to you, those kinds of things. So it can't be sniffed. HTTPS is a good thing. The problem is, of course, that, well, a couple of problems. One, not every site really needs HTTP. Uh, you know, the fact that you're looking at a particular site that has no personal information, it just has, I don't know, uh, open source books like, I don't know, sure. Gutenberg, the look, Gutenberg project, you right? Up, you look up cookie, chocolate chip cookie recipes or something. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't there's, matter. There's, there's, nothing. there's nothing that needs to be secure about that. Um, so that, that's a problem. But Google's kind of sort of ramming HTTPS down everybody's throat uh, so that even those kinds of sites will have to upgrade. The real problem um, are, leg I'll call them legacy sites, sites that continue to exist on the internet that- GeoCities. No one's really- That's long gone, but yeah. I know. <laughs> Point that, that no one's really maintaining or paying attention to. In other words, even if it did make sense to make an HTTPS transition, there's nobody to do the work. Like yahoo.com. Uh, <laughs> same, same thing. It's already, <laughs> yes. But um, so anyway, I just, I was curious. The, supposedly the cutover was like a few days ago, last week sometime, I think. And yeah, I, I think yet, so. I have yet to see uh, any of those kind of warnings. And of course, I've got a couple of HTTP only sites myself. And I do. Uh, You're part of the problem, Leo. I know. That's I why know. the Leo dynasty is it, going so poorly. Yeah, well, I'm while sure. you were talking, I had uh, I was looking for just a plain HTTP site just to look and make sure that mine isn't doing it. And uh, it took me a while to find a site that didn't have a certificate. Right, right. A lot of, and you've seen this, Randy, I'm sure a lot of the hosting providers are actually automatically making some HTTPS connections available without the site owner being involved, which is actually kind of sort of cool. I mean, I, I like that. Um, it's free to the site owner as well. Um, there's a bunch of obscure technology behind the scenes that is definitely non-trivial, but because it's being rolled out as part of uh, what we refer to as cPanel, um, as part of a big web hosting package, it's one of those things that they implement something very complex in this package, but then it's just easy to use for everybody that gets it, that happens to use it. Um, in my case, I went to one of my sites that's actually hosted out on Amazon S3 directly, so there is no code running. There's nothing, you know, it really does take work to make it, um, uh, to make it HTTPS, and it's still HTTP. There's the little circle I that says, hey, there's information about this site. It's definitely not uh, the black um, of the old, I forget now what the old icon was for an HTTP site. And yes, if I click on that I for information, it says, hey, you know, this site is not secure. But it's not the big red flag that I was expecting. Klaxon sounding. Yep, I was expecting the red alert sound to fire off or something. 
Um, so I was just curious if anybody had seen that yet. It's something to be aware of that uh, theoretically is coming down the pike. I really want to understand how obnoxious it's going to be because I think it really runs a risk of um, unnecessarily scaring the people that shouldn't need to care about this stuff. So anyway, I was just curious. Well, and speaking of the red alert sound, I got to go on a little little tangent here. (laughs) The guy who came up with the sound effects for Star Trek, the original series, died just recently, Doug Grindstaff, and he came up with the sound that Tribbles make and the sound that the communicator makes when you flip it open, all that kind of stuff. He was there for the entire run of the series and uh, was hired directly by Gene Roddenberry to make the sound for the show. So yeah, I, I read the honorary unsubscribe as part of uh, this evening's This Is True, and I thought that was pretty pretty awesome. He was a pretty awesome guy. It's amazing where they came up with some of those sounds and, and why. I love the story about the, uh, uh, the injection, that, you know, if somebody was getting an injection in sickbay and it, it made, didn't make any noise. It needs and Roddenberry said, no, that's got to make noise. Got to make a noise. So they went out to an air compressor and made a few recordings of air hissing. And that's how the hypo spray got its sound. That was pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, the photon torpedo was hitting a guy wire on a telephone pole, you know, that big steel thing. <laughs> they put a, put a microphone next to it and they hit it with a hammer and go, <laughs> and that was the sound of the photon torpedo. It's yeah. so cool how inventive these guys were. Yeah, sound engineers, especially back in the day, um, they were incredibly inventive and they did some incredibly just amazing work. I love the phrase that Roddenberry worked that he used, I believe it was, you know, about basically painting with sound. He wanted there to be this, this sound about the show, that there shouldn't be these long periods of silence. The sound was a part of it. And I think that We take a lot of that for granted these days because I think it's become apparent that sound is a part of what it is you're watching when you're being entertained by these shows, but it wasn't as obvious back then. If you take a look at a lot of other shows of the era, you'll find that there's a lot of, where's the background sound? Where's the, where's the, where's the music? Where's the whatever? Uh, It's just people talking. How boring is that? And it wasn't just that the Enterprise had a sound. The bridge had a sound. The transporter room had a sound. The sick bay had a sound. Every different place in the ship had its own ambient noise that kind of made you know where you were. Yep, yep. I'm surprised. There was at one point um, an album, and I mean that literally, a a record, that was available that contained a lot of these... um, sounds as just short clips they were sound it was a sound effects record i i don't remember unless you're talking about generic records for star trek i wasn't aware of it until it came out on cd so it was a okay it was a cd yeah yeah i'm wondering if that's still available somewhere because i you know i'm sure that um folks are are interested in hearing i mean you know i mean we've had it i don't remember if it was one of these podcasts or not where in the middle of the show my phone rang my right. ringtone is the original series, um, sh- a captain's call, uh, the bosun's whistle. And uh, it's just you know, for a variety of reasons, it's uber geeky, but you can also hear it just about anywhere, no matter what the background noise is. Yeah, I used uh, to have that for text messages. And it's one of those things where, you know, if you've got the, an album of this kind of stuff 
uh, coming at you, you know, available to you. You can use it for your phone. You can use it for various things. I thought that was kind of, kind of unique and interesting. I found it. I have linked to it. There'll be a link in the show notes. Uh, the, the Star Trek sound effects, it's available on CD, audio cassette, or vinyl, if you want to go oh my. old school. Audio cassette. From GNP Crescendo. Ooh, wow. We've got uh, shuttlecraft interior, bridge sequence, handheld medical scanner, warp drive acceleration. Garbled, Phasers, of course. Garbled radio signal, many triples, sick base scanner. Oh, this is good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I- I have I it. I, I just heard it. a buy now button getting pushed. <laughs> and uh, Doug Grindstaff was the, the guy behind all of it. Hey, Doug. I now I have to look and see if this is available on Spotify. We just... <laughs> <laughs> that, would be the, that would be a very bizarre playlist. Oh, right? yeah. Play, just, play it on shuffle. They, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, no, like I said, that was a really, that was a very timely or cool or, or honorary unsubscribe. All right, so let's get back to our agenda. Oh, sure, why not? Uh, so Dropbox, was, Leo. It was announced earlier today, I think it was, that uh, premium Dropbox subscribers, users, uh, will get a bunch more space. They did get the a- final part- frontier. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, <laughs> You've, you've caught me speechless. The, the professional accounts get two terabytes and the business standard will get three terabytes. Exactly. So the one terabyte, they've got a terabyte now, which is, which is a bunch of space. But they just decided, you know what? Here, hey, we'll, we'll double it to two. The, uh, the, the rationalization, or at least the public justification was, you know, so many people are doing video. Lots of people are doing 4K video. Those files are really big. Just here's some more space to go play with that. And while I was thinking about it, I recently, uh, so I, of course, being who I am and what I do, Nerd. I, I've got, exactly, I've got space all over the place, right? I've got, I've got a terabyte of OneDrive space that comes with my uh, Office 365 subscription, which, by the way, as far as I'm concerned, is still one heck of a deal uh, for everything that comes with it for, I think it's like 100 bucks a year. That's, that's pretty incredible. Even if it's just for the space in comparison. Uh, so I've got that. Um, I was looking at different ways of trying to save a little bit of money on the backups that I've been doing of my server. You know, I have 20 some odd WordPress sites and I've got the server itself and the backups cost money at the hosting provider. And I was, I was pushing them out to Amazon S3 where you don't, you, you pay as you go there. You only pay for what you use, but it's a little bit more expensive than that. And I was started looking at uh, Google Drive. And it was actually Gary, who's not here this week, um, who suggested that I take a look at that because there are ways to uh, actually push the backups that we've been doing to Google Drive directly. And I looked at that and, you know, for a hundred bucks a year, it's like another terabyte. It's like, it's, it's awesome. And it's just amazing the amount of space that is now becoming available, not just to business users, but to the average users uh, to make use of to do just incredible amounts of not just sharing or collaborating with others to share their files, which of course we absolutely do with that. I've done that you know, with Dropbox for a long time. I've done it with, I did it just today with OneDrive, sharing a few pictures with friends, those kinds of things. But um, you know, as I've talked about a lot on Ask Leo, it's one of the easy ways to get a lot of things backed up. It's not 
everything you want in a backup, but it is one of the easiest ways to make a backup in a backup that's off, uh, you know, uh, literally off-site, which is one of the other things we like to we like to see about backups. So, I just love that that this is happening now. What I wish that uh, Dropbox would do is increase the amount of space that's available at the free tier. Uh, I'm still at the free tier. I don't pay Dropbox any money. Um, yes, yeah, so same here. Yeah, the free tier. You guys are leeches. I pay Dropbox. Good for you. I'm glad. I'm. I'm yeah, glad to be so right. Well, I pay them. I the- get 20 gigs. You know, it it does what I need it to do, which is especially sharing with other sure. people. Right. And if I want to just store oodles of information, I've got the OneDrive also. It's a terabyte. So you know, and if I need another terabyte, I just create another. You know, put it on another computer and and because. The Office 365 Home comes with five user licenses, and that means five one terabyte chunks of data storage. Mm-hmm. Right. It's an, it's an amazing. There's nothing that says I, I can't be two of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or three. Yep, exactly. Uh, the, uh, the, the place where Dropbox still doesn't really measure up to their competition is in the amount of storage that they give you for free. By default, you only get, I think it's two or three gigabytes uh, for free when you sign up for a Dropbox account, which to be fair, is plenty for a lot of people. Don't get me wrong. It enables a lot of things to happen. If all you're trying to do is share a few files or a few pictures, you know, short term or one off, it's, it's great. Uh, Randy and I both have, uh, because of the way we talk about Dropbox, they actually have an incentive that will give you um, more Dropbox space up to a limit of 20 gigabytes, uh, or 22, I think it is, uh, if you, you know, get other people to sign up. But that's it. I mean, that, and that's, you know, not everybody can do that kind of stuff. So I really do wish that they would take their base offering, their free offering, and up the storage a little bit. I'm hoping, I'm assuming that they're doing analysis on the back end to say what that, what the impact of that would be to them. And because obviously all the storage has to come from somewhere, but it would be a, uh, a nice addition to what is otherwise, uh, it's kind of like the default file sharing service that we all tend to think of that most people know of that whenever we want to describe this kind of thing, we either talk about Dropbox or we say that, well, you know, OneDrive, it's like Dropbox or, you know, mm-hmm. Google Drive, well, it's like Dropbox. Right. So anyway. I, I've, uh, I'm, I'm a Dropbox Pro or Dropbox Premium or whatever it's called. I think I spend $99 a year for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and as of today, as of right now, I just looked and it still says I have uh, a limit of one terabyte. So I have not received an email about the, the increased space nor do I, is it reflected in my account yet? But you said it just happened today, so yeah. Looking at the blog off. post, the blog post was was um, posted this morning. Actually, mm-hmm. it does say starting today, professional accounts will get two terabytes of storage. Um, but you uh, know exactly how that rolls out to your account. I don't know. You may need to like maybe you need to log in again or something. Maybe yeah. So currently, as of right now, I'm using uh, 264 gigabytes out of my one terabyte. Yeah. So yeah. I use it for a lot of. I use it for collaboration. Mm-hmm. And I use it for, for backup. I do a lot of interviews for my other podcast. And uh, as soon as I do an interview, I mean, everything just goes straight to the Dropbox. That way I know, I know it's, it's backed up. My computer crashes. I have not lost a irreplaceable, you know, hour-long conversation, audio file or anything like right. that. So. Right. 
I've slowly switched to using Dropbox almost exclusively for that kind of sharing. All of my uh, um, assistants uh, are in, you know, have a, we have a subdirectory for each that's shared between that assistant and myself. We're throwing things back and forth all the time. Um, I use OneDrive primarily for, for uh, personal backup. Uh, that's where I do. I, if, if, where I've, if I were to consider myself as using cloud so- storage on a daily basis, you know, I keep active documents and active things. That's all in OneDrive. Um, Google Drive, I end up using mostly for uh, photos. It's where my Android phone automatically uploads all the pictures that it takes which is a very, very convenient thing. Because then, of course, at the same time, a few seconds later, all those pictures download to you know, the laptop and the desktop and whatever other computers I'm running. Um, so this Google, this Google Drive that I'm using for my backups is actually a separate Google account that's dedicated to the company that's taking these server backups. And yes, of a terabyte, I think it's only a third full right now. I did discover that you can run two Google Drive clients on the same machine at the same time. So I've got um, you know, Google Drive for my personal account, syncing files over in that folder over there. And I've got another instance of Google Drive for my company account, syncing some of the files in that other folder over here. That's pretty nifty. It is. It is. So anyway, cloud storage. I know a lot of people, it makes, it makes a lot of people nervous. I get that. Um, I solve that by encrypting things that are even moderately sensitive. It's not hard to do. Uh, tools like Boxcryptor or uh, Cryptomator will do that in a fairly transparent way with strong uh, encryption. But uh, it's so incredibly useful. Um, and these days, especially when I travel, if I lose my laptop, there are problems associated with that, but data loss isn't one of them. And that's really, really nice to know. Neat stuff. And... Uh... You know, you're not limited to just one of them. I actually run both Dropbox and OneDrive, and you can uh, oh, absolutely do any kind of combination you want. Yeah, and and the the downside. So there's two downsides. One is it takes a little while longer than average for my machine to boot up because it's going right. to fire up the OneDrive client and the Google Drive client and the and the Dropbox client and. Uh, so that does add a little bit to the startup time because you've got all of these things running in the background at the same time. Um, the other is actually a, uh, a different problem on my phone. When you install these clients on your phone, and in fact, some other programs try and do this as well, like the Flickr app for your phone, each one of them will say, hey, do you want me to upload your pictures for you automatically? Hey, do you want me to upload right. your automatically? <laughs> Choose if, one. <laughs> if you're not careful, you can have every picture get uploaded like five or six different times to five or six different services. Um, Another problem that can happen with that I've noticed in when you're in situations where a lot of people are trying to use limited bandwidth, for instance, at at a Starbucks or a convention center or uh, on a cruise ship or something like that, uh, you've got all these soft, these automated programs that are trying to upload every photo you take um, and also combined with other automated things like uh, we're going to download your app updates and stuff. And and there's no bandwidth available for anybody because, uh, because everybody's trying everybody's to do it. Dropboxes and OneDrives and whatever are trying because to. Because the Savitz dynasty is downloading. Yeah, I get it. That's right. That's, yeah. And, and my wife had that problem when she was walking the Camino. And, you know, at night when she was at some hostel, everybody who's walking the Camino is trying to upload their, their pictures. And so 
I wouldn't actually get them because she was uploading them to me so I could post them online for her. And it wasn't until like two or three in the morning, her time that I started getting a good stream because the bandwidth was finally loosening up. Right. Right. I have to be careful with that myself because some of the, some of the things that I'm backing up on the server side are pretty large. And even if, relatively high speed connection. They can take quite some time to download. So there are a few. One of the things that's nice about, I know OneDrive and Google Drive both do this. I'm pretty sure Dropbox does this as well, is you can select uh, either, you know, sync all the folders in the account or only sync these folders. And that's a nice way to exclude a lot of stuff from downloading to your machines that you don't necessarily uh, want on every machine. But Kevin's right. I've, I've run into that myself, especially when I'm out traveling in a Starbucks or whatever. Um, then, yeah, I'll take that extra effort to go click on each one of the icons and pause the sync or exit the program or do whatever just to stop it from doing whatever it thinks it needs to do because I'm in a limited bandwidth situation. And you can limit the bandwidth of these things. I mean, if you right-click on the Dropbox icon, you, you can say only give it this much, much bandwidth. So if it if it's slowing you down, you can pause it or slow it down. Yeah, the problem with slowing it down is that that's a setting that never changes. In other words, if you do that while you're at Starbucks and then you forget to reset it when you get back home, uh, but it's still kind of sort of working, it's just really slow. Whereas if you've got it paused, that becomes pretty obvious. Um, pretty quick. I, I think OneDrive has timed pause, if I'm not mistaken, where you yes, can say- Yes, which is very nice. Yeah, that that's a really neat thing. So yeah, pause thinking for two hours, eight hours, 24 hours. That's neat. Right? Yeah. I, I wish uh, Dropbox would have timers like that too. Yep, yep. That's a good feature. So. All righty. Yeah, can I mention one other cool thing Wait, I did that since we have a do. couple of minutes, when I was on my, my trip before I went to Kansas Fest, I got to go to the Museum of Independent Telephony in Abilene, Kansas. Which was a uh, <clears throat> museum. Apparently, this was the company that sort of like became the company that became the company that became Sprint. <laughs> so you know, but it started more than a hundred years ago. So it was a lot of displays of old telephones, and you could see how uh, switchboards, and you can see how when you when you dial a a, a landline, how the uh, the, the phone line is is connected. They actually like see like the, the the circuit switching machine, you know, with all the little gears and stuff going on in there. And uh, it was very cool. I took my took my daughter and uh, you know showed her how a dial telephone works. <laughs> <laughs> well, is that why they call it dialing? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, she had a good time making calls and watching the machinery work and. Uh, uh, it was you know, some of those old switches were just amazing in how they worked, where they would have these step motors and, you know, you'd dial and it would click, 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 and do this thing. And then it would do that thing. Mm-hmm. And just the the sheer mechanics behind it was incredible, especially when you're talking about the 60s and 70s, when population was really booming and telephones were becoming ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. How do you handle all this with completely analog technology? Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, it was. And they and even for super, super analog technology, they had like, uh, like, uh, a, like a room where like the the operator would live, you know, and it's like a bed <laughs> and a shelf and a, and a phone set up. And like you're, you're on duty for 24 hours. You know, if someone wants to make a call at 3am, you know, hop out of bed and, 
and go link it up and 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 then displays of telephones just like from the it was neat to see phones from you know from the 1900s and from the 1950s and you know from the 1980s and, and uh, yeah i've got some old eras. phones from the 40s and 60s that i just think are cool they're just neat technology from their time so uh yeah if you if you find yourself in abilene kansas um there's not a lot to do, but this is one of the things you can do. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty cool, really. That does sound cool. I know there's a, um, a museum of, of either telephony or some kind of communications in uh, Bellingham, which is about 80 miles north of where I live, that mm-hmm. I have yet to go to. But it's one of those things that sounds really cool. If I'm in the town, if I'm in the neighborhood, I need to stop by and see this thing. Right. So what else is going on this week, guys? I've, you know, for me, it's it's all. Back to uh, heads down, nose to the grindstone, answer questions, do that kind of stuff. Now, now the Leo yeah. dynasty has ended, you need to get back to work, I yep, guess. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I, am, I have another geeky weekend coming up uh, in a few days. Uh, I'm headed back down to San Jose to go to the Vintage Computer Festival West, and uh, where I get to play with more old computers. And I am going to be giving a talk and uh, seeing some friends and uh, geeking out with... Uh, more and different old machines. What will your talk be about? That's an excellent question. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, the talk I, I said I was going to give, let's see, what did they say it was going to be? Um, it's, it's called Bits and Bytes, the Educational Computer Musical, which I think I talked about uh, uh, a podcast episode I was working on a, about that topic uh, on this. I think I mentioned it here a few months ago. Yeah, I remember uh, but, coming yeah, so basically it was a, uh, uh, a musical play that in the early 80s that taught kids about computers. So um, since I have the information about that, I'm going to talk about that. But frankly, I don't think that's going to be long enough. So I think I'm going to kind of extend it to talk about just like other weird little stories and, and uh, little niches I, I have discovered in, in my, in my uh, work as an as a amateur computer historian. Just kind of talk about some of the people and things that uh, that I found. Yeah, you've definitely run across some really interesting, uh, interesting things. Yeah, and talked to some really interesting people. I have. Yeah, I just queued up a, a bunch of uh, interviews to run basically an interview every four days for the entire month of uh, August with with uh, different people. I talked to a guy, uh, a couple of different people who were uh, physics, a physics, and a I think a chemistry professor who were using. Uh, Atari 8-bit computers in, in the 80s to uh, run uh, chemistry experiments, you know, in, in, the, in the lab and they wrote little programs and you hook up things up to the, the joystick port so you can like, time, you know, how fast the ball falls or how gaseous the gas is or whatever. I don't know anything about science. But um, so anyways, interesting to hear their, their stories of, of, about, about teaching that stuff, being, kind of being in the first classrooms to, to have computers in the science classroom in, in a college situation. We'll have to make sure to uh, to link to your podcast in today's show notes since we're talking about it. What's remind me the name again? It's uh, Antic, the Atari Eight Bit Podcast at ataripodcast.com. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I know. For folks that are interested in that kind of stuff, it sounds like you're talking to a, you know just have a fascinating amount of material. It's fun to do. Love talking to all these people. Randy, what's coming up for you? I don't have a whole lot to uh to plan for my life is very boring right now but uh <laughs> sometimes so, boring is good you know yes it is and it, i've been uh 
doing some uh, cleanup after uh, moving my main website to this is true site to uh, to WordPress for a movable type. Uh, as I'm going through and just looking at things, oh, that's broken. Oh, that doesn't look right. Oh, that's oh, that's ugly. Oh, that link is broken. So I've just been kind of going through and cleaning it up and uh, making it look better. Nice. So that's what I've kind of been doing the last couple of weeks, actually. Even while you're traveling? Uh, when I didn't have internet connection, no, I wasn't doing that. But <laughs> I, actually, no, that's not true. I was doing some of it on my phone, and I would just hit the share button and uh, and send myself the link. And uh, Oh, right, as a reminder. Yep. Yeah, just here, here's what you need to do on this page. Here's what you need to do on that page. Very cool. What about you, Leo? What do you anything fun? No, no. <laughs> like I said, it's a nose to the grindstone. Like I said, all the the corgis are are taken care of for this year. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll probably do a little bit of camping in a few weeks, but uh, nice. Other than that, the next couple of weeks, at least, are just sort of business as usual. I think I'm just going to spend the next hour or so listening to the Star Trek sound effects, which are indeed on Spotify. <laughs> 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 well, there you go. All right. All right. Well, the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh34. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter with noises in the background at (laughs) the TEH Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again here next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.